Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Ezra Klein Show. I am Ezra Klein, and this week we have our first returning guest, Heather McGee, the president of Demos, which is a, a fantastic think tank. Heather was a guest on the show a couple months back. Very few episodes have had as positive a response from you all. She is particularly just genuinely brilliant on the intersection of race, on of class, of politics. And the conversation we had then was one I really wanted to revisit in the aftermath of the election. So I think this is a a conversation very much worth hearing. Heather has a perspective on this that is really worth sitting down with for a little while and absorbing. So I'm grateful to her for coming back. I think you all will really enjoy this. It has certainly left me with a lot to think about. And she has a story in there about someone she met on C-SPAN, who she has been having a a fascinating cross-racial dialogue with that is worth the price of admission on its own. So I hope you enjoy. I've got a couple requests this week, including a new one. So one thing you all have been asking me to do is to do an Ask Me Anything podcast where I answer your questions as opposed to to interviewing someone else about my questions. (laughs) I'd be happy to do that give it a try. So email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com, or if you want to hear your voice on the air, send an iPhone or I guess Android or whatever voice memo with your question. And we will sometime soon have an episode where I go through your questions for me, which I hope will be fun. So yeah, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Send me your questions, email me your voice memoed questions, and we will do that sometime very soon. As always, I appreciate it. I'm grateful when you share this show, when you put it on Facebook or email, or when you tell someone you're enjoying it. And when you tune into my my other podcast, The Weeds, where Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff and I talk through politics and policy. In particular, on The Weeds of this week, we have the pilot of a show we're thinking of launching through Vox. Sarah Cliff and Liz Shelton's doing narrative journalism about the way public policy affects real people. I think you all really enjoy it, and they are really looking for feedback and to get a sense of, of audience reaction. So I would really be grateful if you checked out The Weeds feed and downloaded that special sneak peek episode of our coming show show, which is, I think, really, really cool. All right. All that said, thank you so much for being here. And here is Heather McGee. Heather McGee, thank you for coming back to the show. Good morning, Ezra. Under these fine circumstances. Oh, boy. So I have really wanted to talk with you after the election because I 
feel that so much of what happened in the election, so much of the conversation happening in the aftermath of the election bears very directly on, on the conversation we had on this podcast way back when and also on a lot of the work you've been doing. So I, I think I wanted to just begin with the the big question here, which is give me your narrative of what happened in the election. When people say to you, Heather, I, I, how did this happen? How did Trump get elected? What do you say in response? I say that there's no one answer for what went wrong to give us the election outcome that we had. I try to remind people that Hillary Clinton still won the popular vote. Um, By 1.7 million and counting. It's not a small and, win, actually. And counting. Not a small win. But I do you know, participate in the diagnosis that's been going on, the diagnostic exercise that's been going on, because I think it's really important. First, I say that... There are basically three lessons that I immediately took away um, on early in the wee hours of Wednesday morning after uh, as the election returns were coming in and the sort of calm settled upon me as I realized what was happening and, and, and what, you know, our lives would look like for the next uh, four years, at least, if not, if not possibly more. One is that race remains the organizing principle in American politics, and that is something that um, I've been saying for a long time to Democrats and to Republicans, and I'm happy to go into that more. But I think that this was, in many ways, the culmination of a 50-year Southern strategy at exactly the right moment in terms of the demographic change and the reaction to the Obamas being in the White House and with exactly the right messenger of a billionaire phony populist who really was able to stoke white fear of the racialized other every single time he took to the podium and to weaponize it against what was beginning to be a sort of multiracial cross-class consciousness that we're all in it together. Second, populism is actually popular, even phony populism. And at a time when, you know, as our social science and political research has shown the choices of elected officials are farther and farther away from the values and interests of their constituents, but more aligned with their donors. Anyone who's kind of railing against the political status quo, political elites, is going to, to have an audience. And then third, record levels of economic inequality and insecurity, surprise, surprise, have electoral consequences. And we're at a moment when half of American families couldn't pay a $400 bill without going into debt and selling something. We're also at a moment when the Democrats' natural base, uh, young people, people of color, single women and women-headed households and struggling families of all races are the ones who are actually suffering the most from the political and economic status quo. So the idea that a campaign that was driven to sort of continue what's currently going on, but without the personal popularity of President Obama, the idea that that kind of campaign and message could actually have created the surge of a Democratic base voters that was necessary was looks very full hearted uh, in retrospect. So I want to go to your first point, which is that race is the organizing principle of American politics. And the reason I want to push on it is here's what I have heard a lot of since the election. How could this have been race if Donald Trump won Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan, among others, states that had voted for Barack Obama? 
How can this be race if states that would vote for an African-American turn to Donald Trump? Isn't this simply something liberals are telling themselves to make themselves feel better? So race is complicated. It seems like a bit of an understatement, but it's important to remind folks. I mean, we have not yet had a popular and even I would say popular among commentators and political elites sort of revision of the understanding of the really complicated and sophisticated and subtle way that racial identity is formed, that racial prejudices and biases persist and evolve, and that most importantly, the way racism can be primed by communications, by powerful messengers. So in the 2008 and 2012 election, I really do believe that the racial priming that was done that was sort of the loudest and most effective was actually being done by the Democrats. It was a message that by voting for Barack Obama, you were voting for your better angels, that this was a family you would love to have into your house as a sort of suburban or rural white person that may not actually have that many black people to their houses that often for dinner. And that the opponent, particularly in 2012, Mitt Romney was a monopoly figure, top hat and cane wearing billionaire. And he was a patrician who, as he displayed, I think, in an act of, of courage, actually, now this past year and saying and repudiating Donald Trump's racism and unfitness for the office, he was someone who would never willingly and consciously, I think, do the amount of, of racial priming. And by that, I mean just sort of trying to invoke people's sort of core identity about who they are as a race and making that paramount that Donald Trump did every single time he spoke. His sort of makers and takers and 47 percent talk was, A, something that he didn't do often from the stump, right? I mean, that 47 percent moment was caught on camera. And B, you know, it just was not in his playbook to race bait in the same way that Donald Trump did. And I want to really make it clear that I think that we have, all of us within us, conflicting ideas, beliefs, fears, suspicions, and loyalties around racial and ethnic difference. All of us, people of color as well. And that should be the sort of starting point. I think that racial liberals like myself and like most progressives who sort of want to see a more racially just America do ourselves a disservice by basically buying into the conservative idea that we've really come so far on the journey of racial healing that we don't need to do the hard work to address racism in ourselves pretty much every single day. I mean, if you think about it, we've this country has had a, an apartheid system of legal discrimination from before our founding until, you know, around when my mother was a teenager. <laughs> so the idea that we should be surprised that something like Donald Trump's message, which united a core sense of white male identity under siege with an economic populism and an anti-establishment middle finger and wrapped that all up in a picture of success, of a return of economic dominance in the United States, and, you know, someone who had his finger on the sort of nerve of how we like to be entertained now, right? I mean, you have to remember this was a reality TV show star where 
the rules are different, where the villain and the person who does the most outrageous thing is actually the person who is the crowd favorite. He was able to create a truly winning formula at a time of possibly not well-deserved, but still prevalent anxiety about uh, white men's place in a changing America. One thing people have pointed out, exit polls are a little tricky because mm-hmm. we're not sure they are right. But from what we can tell, it is not obvious that Hillary Clinton did better than Barack Obama with African-Americans, with Latinos. She might have done worse. She, she certainly appears to have done worse in terms of turnout, particularly of African-Americans. And that has, I think, for a lot of folks presented a, a puzzle. If Donald Trump were really activating such uh, racial identity in people, if he was really creating such fear, then why wasn't turnout higher? And why weren't the numbers significantly more lopsided than what we had seen in the past? Well, I'll say two things. One, we, I think, haven't done enough and we won't know the the full extent of the data for some time to really acknowledge that another crucial piece of the right-wing strategy, which is voter suppression, actually suppressed votes. You look at a place like Wisconsin that had a strict voter ID requirement where they're just lots of good reporting about people who have had to go and try to get the appropriate ID multiple times. Federal court said that there were about 300,000 eligible voters in Wisconsin who lacked the necessary ID. And, you know, the margin there was about 27,000 votes. So the turnout of African-American voters and young voters and voters from Latino backgrounds were particularly what was uh, squarely in the crosshairs of this wave of of Republican-led laws to suppress the vote. So I think we should seize the structural response when when it's right there in front of our eyes and not forget about it. I will say, however, that I've been most interested actually in what's going on with young people in this election. According to CNN exit polls, I believe Hillary Clinton did about five percentage points worse with young voters than did President Obama in 2012. And a third party candidate did about five percentage points uh, better. And this is where you sort of have to come back to this kind of fundamental reckoning that needs to happen within the Democratic Party. The economic and political status quo is just particularly brutal for the people that we consider to be the democratic base. And I think young people who look at a political system in which billions of dollars are being spent for the outcomes that seem to them to not be addressing the major fundamental challenges of our time, climate change, economic inequality, student debt, the transformation of the quality of jobs, the fact that young people are starting to raise families with unaffordable housing or in the cities and, you know, no public transportation in the rural areas, that there's no child care and paid family leave. Basically, every part of their major, or I would say our, as a, as a uh, sort of millennial grandmother as I am in the first year of the millennial generation, every part of our sort of major list of concerns with the world feel to be dramatically just ignored and not solved by the current politics. And that's with the most popular person we can sort of imagine being in the White House. And so the idea that young people 
should sort of just keep turning out for the Democratic Party without uh, a transformational to them figure at the head. I think it should require not just, you know, slicing and dicing among demographics and racial messages. And I want to come back to this idea of sort of what the message should be that's not sort of micro-targeted the way that I think the Clinton campaign's messages were. But a fundamental rethinking of the scope of ambition of the Democratic Party's reform messages, reform uh, agendas, rather. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. I think that there is a quite imprecise discussion happening about elites and elite backlash and how voters absorbed who they were voting for. I hear a lot of people talk about this year as an anti-elite year. That is a very hard argument to square with something like, say, Rob Portman way outpacing Donald Trump in Ohio or Ron Johnson beating Russ Feingold in Wisconsin. But what does seem to me to have at least some validity is when you when you look at exit polls, Donald Trump lost on whether he was qualified to be president. He was behind on temperament. He was behind on knowledge. He was behind on everything except would he bring change Mm -hmm. where he won by 60 points or something. And something that I think is a little bit more precise in the argument about elites, and this is an argument Jeff Stein has made at Vox, is that Hillary Clinton was identified with a corrupt establishment. Mm-hmm. Look, Barack Obama is an elite. He is the president of the U.S. <laughs> and his approval rating is great. And but I he's think a reformer. But he is yes, he always he's has, fundamentally it, that's a reformer. Been his brand. Yeah. People believe that like them, Barack Obama is angry at the state of American politics. Maybe he can't change it even being president, but they they think on some level that he's with them on this. And Clinton, I just don't think people believe that about it, in part because I don't think it's true. I think no. that Hillary Clinton believes that we have the system we have and you do as much as you can, as often as you can to make change for people through it. But I think that one thing that turned out to be very powerful in this election, and you saw it with Bernie Sanders' challenge to Clinton in the primary too, is comfort with a system is really not where the American people are right now. 
<laughs> that's right. I think that's that's precisely right. I also think that people are looking for an idealism in politics. And, you know, for better or for worse, Trump offered uh, a return to an ideal. He said, I, 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 I can make America great again. I mean, that is deeply idealistic. I can solve all of our problems in the Middle East. I have a plan. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but don't worry about that. I got it covered. I can just ban the Muslims. Don't worry. I know it's complicated to figure out the good ones from the bad ones. I can just ban them. I'm going to round up all of the the sort of boogeymen that go bump in the night and and scare you, or even if you weren't scared, I've made you scared by by everything that I've said about the sort of criminal hordes uh, teeming at our shores. And I can fix it. And I can fix it. And we can be great again. I'll bring the jobs back. I mean, that was a fundamentally idealistic I mean, it was in some ways hope and change, right? I'm going to change the system and give you, a very narrow you, the hope back. Your children will have the same kind of windfall of a a beautiful economic life that the white male-headed working to middle class had in the post-war period. Hope and change in some ways is still actually the winning positive message. And I do think that this has been that we have had since the financial crash change elections almost every two years, if you really dig into it. And we're going to keep seeing it until there is actually structural reform. There's been post-election a big conversation among Democrats about how do they return to former levels of popularity or something near it among the white working class. And there's a very sharp focus on who voted, who actually did turn out and how do you change their patterns. Mm-hmm. But I think that if you look at this pretty closely, you can you can make one argument for that strategy, right? Going back to the white working class, you can make another argument for a strategy where you nominate a candidate who is more exciting to the Obama coalition, who, like Obama, is able to get just larger turnout among young people, among African-Americans. And, and it does seem that Hispanics turned out, although their votes are are geographically poorly suited for the Electoral College. But I guess this is, I think, a a core question. Do you think that there is a tension between this white working class strategy and this Obama coalition strategy? Is this a choice Democrats have to make? I'm so glad you asked that question, Ezra, because that is, you know, it's one of the big risks, I think, that Democrats are running right now by seeing this sort of polarity between talking about race two and four people of color, right, which is the way that Hillary Clinton did it. She, you know, she said, I'm going to say Black Lives Matter to black people. I'm going to talk about the need for immigration reform and and not breaking up families to Latinos. I'm going to talk about the glass ceiling to women and talking about class to white people. I strongly believe, and in this period of time, we at Demos are going to devote a lot of resources to testing this idea, testing the messages. I strongly believe that we have got to talk about race, class, and gender. I say race meaning just sort of identity and class simultaneously and to all audiences. Donald Trump was able to talk about race and class simultaneously. He did what good political storytellers, of which there are very few in this country, do, which is not just talk about policies, but explain to an audience their place in the world, how they fit, where they sit, who belongs with them, 
where they land on the hierarchy of society and the hows and whys of why they are in the place that they are. Those questions that I just mentioned are not policy questions. They're questions of fundamental meaning and identity. So of course you have to talk about race. And the right wing has understood that for the past 50 years since Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act and launched the the Southern strategy. And that is why the majority of white voters have not voted for a Democratic presidential candidate since that time. The meaning that we need to make out of our place in the world is highly racialized, even shock for white people. And so I think that there is a way to explain how it is that the the story that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren tell, the story of the rise of inequality in corporate power, the expansion of corporate power and the shrinking of, of the public and all the goods that make all of our lives decent, there's a way to tell that story and also talk about how race has been the weapon in the class war, to talk about the fact that Economic inequality of the levels that you have now and the amount of economic struggle that the majority of Americans are facing is what America gets when we decide to drain the public swimming pool of opportunity at the moment when people of color join in and want to take a swim. And of course, the public swimming pool is drained and and white kids can't swim either. But we have, as a country, become on virtually every score meaner, and by that I mean sort of uh, stingier, and less willing to support things that are in the public as our public has become more diverse. And the idea of our fates being linked, that when dog whistles in our discourse about cuts and spending result in uh, massive cuts to, for example, public higher education, that means that student debt and tuition climbs, and that hurts white families as well as African-American, Latino, Asian families. And so we've got to be able to say that our fates are linked, that the kind of distrust that has been sown, particularly by, by conservative politicians in both parties in some ways, of the racialized ever, which makes will to spend on the public, the, the will to participate in public systems, that's hurting us all. I'm really excited, the sort of silver lining that I have from this, you know, truly devastating election and set of political uh, kind of demons that is being unleashed into power at this moment is that there is, I think, finally an opportunity to wake up to the continuing salience of race, a desire to, among Democrats, to not have to choose between economic populism and racial and gender justice, and a new generation of leaders, frankly, of of particularly young people who live their lives intersectionally and who want a message that you can bring to the Rotary Club and to the church basement, you know, in a black church and not have to to say different things to different audiences when we're all, in fact, living in a world that's highly, highly racialized and where our politics have always been highly racialized. Let me take the the devil's advocate point on this. Mm -hmm. So... There is a strain of this thinking which is very comforting, I think, for liberals because the the underlying argument a bit is the way to win back the folks who disagree is to be more 
liberal, to integrate more liberal ideas together, but also to be in some ways less compromising about it. I think the most common form of this argument, which is uh, I think less nuanced than the one you're making here, but is that you know what you really need to win the white working class is just be more economically populist. If it had only oh, been right. Bernie Sanders or it had only mm-hmm. been – and this goes back a long time now. And yet when you look at the Democrats who tend to win in these areas, areas like West Virginia or Wisconsin – you don't see these hardcore, more liberal, more intersectional populists. You see people like Joe Manchin and going back a long time to the whole new Democrat lineage. And the old argument used to be that you actually have to moderate to, to win these mm-hmm. folks back. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason I bring this up in this way is that it is hard to track sometimes for me where there are problems of messaging and empathy and communication in American life and where there are genuinely just disagreements. Yeah. Something about Donald Trump is that he is an unusual politician and that he is comfortable with simple disagreement. He doesn't mm-hmm. pretend everybody agrees with him. When he says we need to build a wall, there are just some people who don't think a wall is a good idea and some people who really, really, really do. And, and what Trump says is I think the people who agree with me are a larger group than the people who disagree with me. And a lot of liberals, I think, respond by saying I, we don't think anybody disagrees with us <laughs> and that we're just not framing what we're saying clearly enough. Oh, yeah. I think that's a really good point, Ezra. A lot of people disagree with us. It's taken 50 years of subterranean priming uh, dog whistle coded messages that have made out of a uh, the racial other at best undeserving at worst criminal characters in our in our public discourse. Yeah, there's a lot of disagreement. I don't think it's a shortcut. I really don't. And I want to be very clear that it has taken the entirety of America's history to get us to this point. And the periods of drastic focused mobilization on issues of equality have been short and far between. And we've been sort of in a bit of a a slumber for my entire life as the voices of the civil rights movement faded in the 1970s as the reactionary forces set in on the court first, on the Supreme Court first, and then throughout our society, including within the Democratic Party. We've been in a denial phase. And The left has not been talking about race, particularly the the sort of white progressive left, but even with some complicity from Democrats of color who sort of bought into Bill Clinton's formulation that universalist policies could do better to elect new Democrats and that that ultimately would be better for people of color. You know, obviously, some of the things we got from NAFTA to the welfare reform bill to mass incarceration were belayed that. But I don't think this is a shortcut. And I actually am disheartened by the idea that there's any way to where we need to go except for through it. (laughs) Over the past few months, I've been in a regular conversation with a man who called into a C-SPAN show that I was on in August. It was sort of the hot dog days of a really racially charged summer. And I was on TV talking about public policy and it was a call-in show. And this man called in and said, I'm Gary from North Carolina and I'm a white male and I'm prejudiced. And he went on to explain sort of, you know, how he got his prejudiced ideas and beliefs and, and talked about gangs and crime. 
And then he said, but I'm hoping your guest can help me because I want to change. I want to become a better American. And I responded to Gary really off the top of my head, but, but from my heart. And I said, thank you. Thank you for admitting your prejudice, because that is an extremely important thing for us to do now. In some ways, I really deeply believe that we have to sort of be on the same page about the persistence of of prejudice and racism in our society before we can start to turn the page. And I kind of gave him some, some quick thoughts off the top of my head as to what I thought he could do to sort of integrate his life. And then that video clip, that exchange, went authentically viral. It's had about 8 million views across multiple different sites and platforms, and local newspapers picked it up. And it became this moment, I think, for white people, for sure. The idea that someone white could admit their prejudice to a a black woman and she would respond with empathy and gratitude and offer up sort of a simple way forward. And then I think people of color were really relieved that finally here was a white person admitting that they were prejudiced. I mean, Donald Trump says, I don't have a racist bone in my body. And so you can sort of lose your mind trying to convince white America that racism still exists. And here was this moment between these very two different people. I've since gotten to know Gary and the week before the election, I actually went down to North Carolina and visited him. This is a, you know, you would think a sort of prototypical Trump voter, a middle-aged white man who'd worked with his hands all his career, lived in a rural area in the foothills of, of western North Carolina in the Appalachian Mountains. And he has been transformed since our conversation in, in his words. Um, he kind of took up the program that I that I suggested. And we've been in this sort of long conversation about race. And it hasn't been easy But the fact that he was able to start to get a sense of pride and well-being from joining this sort of personal mission to get rid of his prejudice is, I think, a cause for optimism. I think this election of Donald Trump has been a wake-up call for lots of people like Gary who are sort of fence-sitters on the racial question, right, that aren't would never try to cause harm to any person because of their race, would always want, of course, to be a, a good moral person on an interpersonal level, but hold a lot of fears and prejudices and don't have a lot of relationships across race and are sort of constantly being being primed by talk radio and Fox News to think the worst of people of color. And I think that there is an opportunity right now for work that is hard. And that, frankly, I don't think that the current sort of leaders of the Democratic Party have the sort of willingness or ability or know-how to do. I think some of this has to take place outside of the political sphere. But this is a sort of whose side are you on moment in our politics. And I think a lot of white people who have never been part of a racial justice cause and who probably would be pretty turned off by the racial justice causes as, as they currently exist are going to be open to what I think was a really important project, which is the sort of creation of a 21st century anti-racist white identity that would be a new thing in America on the scale that it needs to be. Let me ask you about the other side of that, because that's a 
genuinely beautiful story. And the story I've heard most often since the election is the opposite one. There is a argument that one of the great mistakes of the liberal coalition in this era has been calling everyone racist, mm -hmm. has been creating a structure of language in which disagreement that people don't believe when they are having it signals a kind of racism, that those disagreements are actually, you know, it's implicit bias, it's implicit racism, it's institutional racism. And there is this discourse that this kind of, I think what people shorthand is political correctness, is part of what led Trump to be elected, is this sort of fury of, of being called racist all the time, of being told that unless you support trans people in bathrooms and gay marriage and Black Lives Matter and all of these expressions of a fairly rapid social and demographic change in some ways, that you are retrograde, that you are a bigot of some kind, discriminatory in some way, racist in some way, homophobic, and that there has been a erosion of the space in which you can be maybe uncomfortable but not actively racist or you can which you can disagree but not be seen as something that in American life is, is genuinely a slur. How do you think about that debate and the starkness of the language that has emerged around it? So I think that if you watched Fox News all day, you would actually have seen this this narrative taking hold very early on probably about 15 years ago, this kind of resentment of the claims for racial justice. I know that it's very popular right now to say that, you know, the racial justice and, you know, queer justice and women's rights movements sort of came, have gone too far too fast and have, have alienated people who would otherwise be there for the cause by demanding too much or being too willing to call out sexism and racism and homophobia. That's not totally telling the complete story because the right wing really clearly early on kind of recognized that when being called a racist became sort of a moral kind of electric wire, that they could use that to redefine racism as talking about race and to create a sort of community of shared grievance of those people who would ever be called a racist. You know, it goes back to where I started, which was we have not as a society created a new shared definition of racism that is as complicated as it exists in our minds and in our hearts and in our subconscious and, of course, most importantly, in our institutions and our laws. We still have a sense that to be racist is to be interpersonally malicious. And of course, now <laughs> we're seeing so much of that reemerging that it, it's going to complicate things even further, right? The KKK is reemerging in our political life and marching across bridges and endorsing the current president-elect. But at the same time, the way that racism most predominantly exists is actually much more in a set of self-justifying beliefs about the inferiority of the racial or of the racial other. And when you think about it that way, when you think about how for the entirety of American history, 
every day, good white folks were able to support a system of apartheid, it requires you to get a little bit more sober about the depth of the belief systems that had to exist and how silly it is to think that those belief systems could be uprooted in the course of a person's lifetime, which is where we are right now. The civil rights movement was a brief, brief period of the sort of heyday of the civil rights movement actually impacting policy and public discourse and sort of shifting the elite consensus was very brief. I mean, it was basically a decade and a half, and it was very recent. And so now it feels different, right? It feels like talking about criminal behavior and pathological behavior, not talking about biological racism. And yet what so often happens, and I even experienced it in my conversation with Gary, where he talked about gangs and crime and single parenthood in his own background and in his own sort of family, and sort of clearly saw that as sort of an individual story, and then talked about the exact same thing and asked sort of why, why, what I can't understand is why, what's the deal in Black communities with all the gang and the crimes and the single parenthood, right? And that is a perfect example of how the, the mind individuates your own group story and collectivizes and pathologizes and generalizes the group stories of the, of the outgroup. That's sort of today's racism, right? It's like, of course, there are exceptions to the rule, but... The problem is that black people just don't want to work. And when I hear good, you know, strident white liberals like Bernie Sanders saying that the unemployment rate is really 50 percent in the black community, I don't think that's because of discrimination on the job. I think that's because black people don't have the same work ethic that white people do. And that's unfortunate. But it's true. That's racism today. So I guess I want to hold you on that point for a second because so make so when Gary or someone says that, what is the actual argument you say back? I say, you know, Gary, um, when they say I'm not racist, that's just what I, you know, come on, like, look at the look at the numbers. Well, well, thank goodness Gary didn't say I'm not racist, (laughs) which is part of how we were able to have the conversation. Right. Right. I mean, there is. Yes, I was able to be empathetic in my response and calm and warm and all of that. But that was because unlike, you know, many other callers on many other shows um, that I've been on, he came out and said, I'm prejudiced and I want to change so that we didn't have to have a 20 minute conversation to identify the prejudice in his beliefs. So that is a really important part of the story. Gary's own courage in admitting and identifying what for him actually is more about fear the level of fear that he has walking through the world of people of color, you know, when he sees them on on the street and and all of that. But you asked sort of how do you how do you have the conversation to identify beliefs as as prejudiced or racist without turning off the white listener? That that's your question or the white, you know, interlocutor with you. Right. When you say this is a new racism and they say, oh, you're just defining this down. Right. This is the problem. You're calling this racist. I just want to have a conversation about about crime in in cities. 
Mm-hmm. So two things. One, empathy is an extremely powerful tool for dialogue. For example, being able to say, to ask the person that you're talking to, do you have anybody in your family who's gotten caught up in drugs? Do you have anybody in your family who's incarcerated? That person, whoever it is, Cousin Kenny, is someone that they love and that they see as a full person and bigger than the sum of their the mistakes in their life. That kind of empathy and individuation and sort of whole character is exactly what racism takes away from subordinated groups. So that exercise is extremely important. There have been a lot of sort of community organizing tools that show that you have to sort of tell your story, listen to other people's stories, and make connections. It's somewhat simple in a way, but at the same time, if you just look at the way that Donald Trump spoke about Mexicans and the African-Americans and the Blacks to sort of totalize the experience, to make the, the experience of the most deprived and disadvantaged inner city communities, the totality of the Black experience, right? There was always this sort of, what do the Blacks have to lose? You know, they're living in a war zone. And of course, every African-American who is not living in a neighborhood where bullets are flying was deeply offended. Was Our experience has been made invisible and our, you know, entire community has been made pathological. That move is so important. It's such a key precursor to the kind of group thinking that can gin up and, frankly, weaponize white fear that I do believe that creating a bridge of empathy and an ability to see individual character is really, really important to sort of undoing that priming of seeing all illegal immigrants as rapists and criminals and all Black people as, well, the same, and all Muslims as terrorists. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. I want to ask you about a different part of this that connects to a lot of work Demos has done over the years, which is the Trump administration, which is Mm -hmm. what we are barreling towards right now. And... Democratic institutions. I think something that's always set you know, a bit apart as a think tank is it has a real focus on democracy and process and legitimacy of the system itself. And something that people are expressing a lot of fear about to me 
is that system in this era. Jeff Sessions mm-hmm. is, is going to be nominated for attorney general. He is someone who I think is unlikely to enforce the nation's civil rights and voting laws <laughs> particularly aggressively. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. Is that an understatement? Okay, go ahead, Ezra. (laughs) Donald Trump himself, I think, does not have a tremendous amount of respect for dissent, for dissension, for, you know, when there were protests on the night of his election, he tweeted the next day that, you know, it's very unfair. This was all the media ginning it up. When Mike Pence went and saw a showing of Hamilton in what is genuinely one of the stupidest controversies I've ever seen, (laughs) and the staff of Hamilton, which is highly non-white, said, hey, thank you so much for coming. We want you to know we're afraid. Please mm-hmm. be inclusive. Please keep us in mind when you are legislating. Again, you know, Trump came out and said he was being harassed in the theater in what was just the most wonderful line, should be a safe space. Oh, my God. I know. So, but, but it's all to say that I, without, without diving too deep in any one of them, I think one of the things, there's the fear of Trump as tyrant, which I think is overblown. I don't think that America's democratic institutions are going to collapse in, in, in a couple of years. I don't think Donald Trump is going to make himself king or would be able to, even if he wanted to. But I, I do think that there are a lot of ways, the ones I've mentioned, gutting of campaign finance laws, which is a, a priority for congressional Republicans right now. There are a lot of ways in which the system can be made less small-D democratic, can be made less legitimate, in which dissent can be criminalized, in which institutions like the press can be attacked by regulatory agencies or, or other agencies or, as Trump has said, by opening up libel laws, in which you know, a lot of the things that I think we take for granted in terms of how American system, uh, how the American political system works – it can erode and it doesn't have to erode all the way for that to be a problem. I'm very curious how you're thinking about tracking and watching and in some ways, I guess, protecting these, the, just the democratic power of our system. Yeah. Um, I think you laid that out very well um, from, you know, the libel laws to the criminalization of dissent um, to the campaign finance system. Democracy is not a guarantee. It's not actually even what our country's founding fathers intended. It is not something that we have had for the vast majority of our country's history. And if you, you know, run some regression analysis on the public opinion polling, it may not be what we have today. If you look so at the I popular think... vote versus electoral college, <laughs> right, it may right, not exactly. be what... I mean, you don't have to, so don't have to think... do all that fancy math. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. 1.7 million. There you go. Um, uh, and, you know, I'd add nine, 90 million, 96 million people who didn't even vote. So I think that we need to do a couple of things, and I think it might be helpful to do this, is one, take democracy off the the pedestal. It's never been something that was just sort of an automatic part of the fabric of this country, and it's always been the fight. It's always been what we've struggled for to sort of expand the table at which uh, all of us as people who live and work and love in this country sit and to have all of our voices heard. That has always been the struggle. So let's not do the very frustrating thing of sort of lionizing our past and not recognizing how much it's it's never been guaranteed and it's always been a fight. So that helps situate, I think, the the fight at hand in less of a, you know, the sky is falling kind of way. I think that if you look at the spread of fascist, ethno-nationalist 
white supremacist, protectionist, exclusionary ideas across the industrialized world right now, it becomes pretty clear that this is no normal kind of threat, however. I think that everything you listed in terms of the ways that Donald Trump, who, you know, has never held government office or been particularly interested in in government except as sort of the guarantor of his debt, has really just shown a kind of basic instinctive lack of appreciation for what we call the sort of democratic norms. How are we going to track it? How are we going to advocate against the erosion of it? I think this is where it's extremely important for us to continue to fight, but also show where we can win a little bit at the state and local level, a little bit in every piece of defense, having some element of offense. By that, I mean, Donald Trump has said that he wants to drain the swamp. And besides, you know, sort of surrounding himself with lobbyists early on, put out a a proposal for a a five-year lobbyist ban, that's one thing. There are about 10 other things that it would really take to reform Washington, including overturning uh, Citizens United and and the court cases that led up to it, including passing public financing. And so the pieces of defense around his broken promises also need to continue in the same breath to say there actually are solutions to make our political system better. I also think that this is a time when we need to not be afraid of opposition. There is a tendency to want to believe in the best from people, to not disrupt our own kind of lives and sense of decorum inside the beltway. This is not the moment for that. There are some kind of 20th century repealing (laughs) possibilities and powers that Donald Trump could have in terms of his uh, appointments to the Supreme Court, in terms of what he could pass legislatively on voting rights, on reproductive rights, on tax policy. The list goes on on immigration that are not questions on climate. Democrats really can't see these things as sort of normal course of business and can't see their job as governing with, I really don't believe they can see their job as governing with an administration that threatens so much of the of the country and for so long. The Republicans in Congress basically decided that they would obstruct everything that President Barack Obama did because he was black. So the idea that Democrats can't find it within their their own uh, backbone to obstruct things that could actually literally destroy the planet. We just this is a time for 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 us to renew our commitment to our core values, to the sense that people who are in elected office right now are there to safeguard not just their own seats but multiple generations in the future. And I hope that's the the kind of action that we see. It's interesting. I've been surprised a bit by both parties in the aftermath of the election. So uh, I actually want to say a word about Republicans because I don't think this is just about Democrats. If you the, the party that is proximate mm-hmm. power yep. right now in Congress, and, and Donald Trump is not of the Republican Party. He is mm-hmm. uh, an, an interloper to it. And you know, if you look at the Senate, which you know Republicans in the Senate 
because there's no filibuster on non-Supreme Court uh, confirmation, appointment confirmation, they, the 52 Republicans really have the, the core power there. Of those 52 Republicans, 11 didn't endorse Trump. Mm-hmm. Of the 41 who did endorse Trump, one called him a, a delusional narcissist. Another said he shouldn't be trusted with nuclear weapons. Another said a speck of dirt is more qualified to be president. Another called him a pathological liar. So there, there are a lot of people there who in their hearts harbor some doubts about this guy's fitness right. for office. So one, I really hope and, and you know, we'll see. But I really hope the Republican Party demands a high bar from its own president here. Yeah. And I hope they do it for the country and I hope they do it because it will in the long term protect them too. Uh, I think that's parties pay terribly. They pay dearly when they are associated with a genuine governing failure uh, as Republicans mm-hmm. found in 2006 and then mm-hmm. 2008. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I hope that one thing they try to do, you know, even right now, even after an election in which they sort of quote unquote won, the Republican Party is seen less favorably than the Democratic Party. And I think yep. that if I were a Republican, I'd be thinking a lot about my brand right now. And, and what do you do to protect it from this guy who clearly presents danger? But that said, the, the Democrats are interesting, too. One thing that I have been fascinated by is despite having won more votes in the presidential election, despite having won more votes in the Senate elections, to my knowledge, I don't think we have final numbers on House. Senate Democrats in particular, they have not come out and said, speaking as a party, that more Americans voted for their agenda. Mm-hmm. We insist that President Trump puts forward compromise nominees that speak to the closeness of this, the the close division of this country. I I feel like people in American politics have a real difficult time navigating this difference between it is not denying the electoral college or the legitimacy of the outcome to say that the plurality of voters should be represented and that their, their, their wishes should be respected even by the people who actually won power. And I think a fascinating thing um, inside of that is that Democrats are, are really one after the Obama years in which they have spent a lot of time and, and energy and moral fervor condemning Republicans for mm-hmm. overwhelming opposition. I think, one, this is a hard case for them to make to themselves because it, it mm-hmm. feels like hypocrisy, right? If you said the problem with Republicans is that they opposed everything Barack Obama did, it's you know it's very difficult to turn around and do that to Donald Trump. But the other, which I, I think is in some ways more salient, is a tendency to take everything as individual. Right. To see Donald Trump's infrastructure plan as not part of the whole presidency, but its own thing, you know, working in its own way. Mm -hmm. And something I think McConnell, Mitch McConnell and others figured out about Obama was that the presidency is one thing. If you want Barack Obama viewed as a partisan president who can't get anything done, you actually have to do that everywhere. Mm-hmm. And here I think the the choice Democrats are going to face is whether or not they let Trump pick them off on individual yep. points or whether they yep. kind of see the presidency as one thing and say, hey, if you want to govern in a way that is surprisingly moderate, we will approach you in that way. But you can't just have the occasional infrastructure bill, but then appoint, you know, Michael Flynn to national security advisor, Steve mm-hmm. Bannon, to chief strategist, mm-hmm. you know, uh, on and on down the line. And that I think that's such a great point, Ezra. And that is where you begin to see the fact that that Democrats don't actually have a multiracial populism start to have real disastrous consequences. Of course, and this is what Donald Trump would say, if I'm going to improve the economy... African-Americans would benefit the most because they are suffering the worst in our current economy. And in fact, that's something that Democrats say a lot. If we truly had 
on the left, an integrated view of how when some people's humanity is devalued, anything that we do as a human collective in a country is going to be cheaper and degraded. It would seem so clear that you can't shake hands with white supremacy and cut a deal about infrastructure. It's hard. I understand. I agree that the tendency to want to go along, to get along, to deliver, to govern, to seem, you know, nuanced and balanced is so strong within the Democratic Party. And then there's this sort of other layer of Democratic populists wanting to sort of reclaim populism from Donald Trump. But our populism has to be one that understands that the weapon in the class war is race and that we can't just allow that weapon to still be so sharp and actually win the class war. People had this wait and see approach and his first set of names that he put forward and surrounded himself with read like a, you know, a deck of cards from, you know, kind of the worst nightmare of people of color in this country. You have to take someone at their word. When they come down the stairs to announce in Trump Tower, to announce their presidency, talking about building a wall to keep out the Mexican criminals and rapists, and then appoint Steve Bannon and Jeff Sessions as part of their core team, You have to take this man at his word. When he creates his entire election and campaign narrative on separating deserving, hardworking, silent majority white people who, for whom the spoils and benefits of America uh, should be reserved, you have to take him at his word. I say this to the Congressional Black Caucus. I say this to the Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders of the world and the Chuck Schumers of the world. And I take this to say this to the Republicans who live in, particularly in the Senate, who are representing states that are actually, you know, 33 percent African-Americans and who have to come home and actually face their constituents. This is not business as usual. This is a a political environment where the humanity and deservingness of people of color has been called into question every single time Donald Trump took to the podium. And that is not separable from his economic message of bringing the jobs back from the countries that are predominantly, you know, racialized others or building a wall to keep the Mexicans out who are threatening your family and your job. I think that is an appropriately sober place to end. (laughs) Heather (laughs) McGee, thank you so much as always. Thank you, Ezra. Thank you to Heather McGee. That was a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate the time she spent and took to do it. Thank you to all of you for tuning in to my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and we'll be back next week.